What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to the Power Company Podcast, brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. I just got home from the Joe's Valley Bouldering Fest, and honestly, because of the, the Real Rock film, I thought I pretty much knew what I was in for. I've been to a lot of these festivals over the years, hundreds of them, and I sort of thought I knew. I was wrong. I was already aware from the film that the locals got involved and I really loved that aspect of it, but I didn't quite realize the level to which the festival is created not just as a festival for climbers, but it's also for the locals. And that was something that I thought was brilliant. Um, Never at another festival, even here in my own hometown, have I had so much contact with the local community. And the local community was so willing to stop and talk to you and watch you climb. And, you know, their kids would get out of the car and try and climb with you, try climbing for the first time. And they would stop by your booth and trade things with climbers at the raffle. And Really just a a great example of the direction that this community should be going. Um, We don't own all that land that we climb on, and we need to start making better inroads um, with the people whose communities we're invading, for lack of a better word. Um, And this is a great example of that. So thanks to Catherine and to Vicky and to everyone else who made this festival what it is. I'll be back next year for sure. Okay, today's conversation is a special one for me. Um, This summer, I had a, a dinner at my house with a group of folks who I have immense respect for. These were all like-minded climbers who are interested in both exploring their own personal limits as well as pushing the community to be better. Um, After the dinner, I heard the same feedback from nearly every person, that conversations with Lore Sabrin were the highlight of the night. Lore is a really beautiful climber who leans into every style in a really intentional effort to improve. And that's something I I really admire. Um, They are a Warrior's Way coach who has this incredible ability to listen, empathize, and then ask you these very kind questions that introduce you to the precise first step you need to take. And that might be an actionable first step, or it might be just a, a thought or emotion that you have to grapple with but it will inevitably lead you in the right direction. And it's because of this that I decided to very selfishly, I might add, turn this episode into essentially my own private coaching session with Lore. 
Um, a lot of you know who have been following that I've recently been leaning into my fears of tall boulders and trying to document my process. And for this episode, I asked Lore to watch a video I had made about a recent scary project, uh, this V10 called Flight of the Antelope, and then give me feedback on my process. And they delivered with an absolute gift of a conversation. Let's get into it. Potentially, like for someone that's just sent their hardest project, growth might mean two months off. Like that might be the next logical step. Can I start by this is like my new new favorite thing to do? I sort of discovered this um, when I was doing all the episodes of the Hard Truth, reading the essays and then talking to people about them. I realized going into it that people were going to be really humble and like not really talk about who they were or what makes them so interesting. So I knew going in, I'm going to have to do this for people. Like they're not going to want to say it. So I want to say it. And it gives me so much joy. This is something I'm learning. It gives me so much joy to like tell people what it is about them that I find really interesting or inspiring or, you know, just what, what makes me think of them as like what their good, their best qualities are in my eyes, you know? Um, or that draws me to them. Um, and for you, something I've been thinking about a lot lately that I really love is how deep you're going into this one aspect of what could be seen as performance. Like we all love to, to say, that's why we're training. That's why we're, you know, getting mental training so we can perform better. But really it also helps us become better humans in general and like be able to exist and interact and engage with our entire life in a more healthy way. And in an era where a lot of coaches are saying, I do all the things like I'm a mental coach, I'm a nutritionist, I'm a personal trainer. I do all these things. You're very much going deep into this rabbit hole of the mental training and psychology to a point where you're like mastering it, um, which I think is really admirable and very cool. Thank you. Like that means a lot. I think, yeah, it's, that's a really interesting thing you just brought up about the idea of like performance versus wellness as if they're two different things. Right, right. It's like, yeah, of course our wellness is attached to our performance. And if you really think about it, like what are most people going for in, in life is like is performance, right? Whether right. that means actually climbing harder or just living a life that feels meaningful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I've always taken this approach of if I can not trick someone, but that's sort of how it feels sometimes. Like I'm tricking someone into improving their wellness by talking about it as if they're improving their performance, mm. you know, and both happen. 
but many people are so focused on, I just want the performance to be better. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. You kind of have to meet someone where they come in. Yeah. And I think people do want both, but it feels mm-hmm. like a funny thing, I think, for people to reach out about, right? Because sure. it almost feels like if someone's reaching out for help with their wellness or their life quality, to a lot of people that feels like admitting that their life isn't what they want it to be. Mm. Or it feels like they're saying they're broken. And I think that's sad because all of us have various levels of life satisfaction that changes by the day. And asking for support with that is a really beautiful thing that adds so much value to everyone around you and your community. But I think so many people do see that as like working on performance is a place of growth, whereas working on saying like, hey, I need help with this, these other aspects of my life or I need support here, that they see more as like admitting that they have a deficit of something. Sure. Yeah. I I also think that climbing in a lot of ways can be this metaphor for the rest of our lives, you know, and and I I personally and I've seen other people do the same of being able to admit that they that they do have a deficit in one area or another, they can do that in climbing because they're they really want to climb harder. Um, and they'll learn through that experience how to do the same in the rest of their life, you know. I would say I've learned pretty much every hard lesson that I've had to learn first in climbing and then mm. in life. And that's like, yeah, I mean, it's super amazing that we have, as climbers, we have a resource to do that. Yeah, yeah, totally. How did you get started into the mental training side of things? Was it was it a need for a hard lesson? Um, or was it the fact that you learned some lesson through climbing and you're like, oh, I can apply this to everything else. This is a really important rabbit hole for me to explore. How did that happen? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I would say I started with a need for mental training on my very first day of rock climbing. Mm. Like I, I remember that day, I kept getting about like two thirds of the way up the slab wall at the gym and I kept stopping and like coming down and being super scared and then finally like convinced myself somehow to get to the top and then spent the next hour like death grip to the wall because I wouldn't be lowered from the top Mm. like I was just terrified and ended up having a gym employee who later became my first manager when I worked at the gym and is still a friend of mine to this day but she like came up behind the wall and just like stood up there chatting with me. Wow. Um, And like, I don't even know that we only chatted about me needing to let go. Like, I think she was like, she's an amazing human. And she was just asking me, you know, about how my day was going, you know, trying to just calm me down. Um, And eventually I sat back and was lowered. And, you know, I think back on that day and I'm like, oh, that was my first mental training coach. Like someone who opted in with me, someone who like taught me how to self-regulate and just allowed me to get to the point where I could deal with the stress that I was dealing with on that day that climbing had brought up for me. And climbing was like that for me pretty much from the start. Did you you recognize that right there at the start? 
that it was harder for me than or that this person was being like a mental coach like the, did it feel mm. like oh this is just part of climbing or or was it a this is something that i need to improve about myself in some way i know it can be nearly impossible to dis- distinguish yeah. between the two especially on your first day of rock climbing yeah but it's fascinating to me that that lesson happens right there day one yeah it's it's interesting i think both like i didn't i wouldn't have at i was 12 oh. so i wouldn't have said at 12 like that, oh that's this. a good point I, i'm seeing it through my lens of <laughs> totally. being 18 you know <laughs> when yeah. I started so no totally and I mean I was a pretty mature 12 year old I was fairly self-aware but I I think I did realize that I was scared mm-hmm. and I knew that climbing was going to be something that I was that was going to push me in a different way than other sports had um and I recognized the value of what Karina this um, person at the gym and my friend, what she was doing for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have been able to articulate that day that she had gone and coached me through sure. this mental limitation. Sure. But I was able to say mm-hmm. that she supported me and that she made me feel safer. Mm-hmm. I remember saying that from day one. And pretty quickly, I remember, like as I was learning to lead climb, I experienced kind of, you know, this was 16 years ago. So there wasn't a whole lot of like compassionate support for folks that were afraid of lead climbing. Right. There was a lot of like no take Tuesdays and making holds spin on the wall to make you whip and stuff. Right, right. um, I remember knowing the difference between people that supported Mm me and, and didn't treat me like I was broken when I felt afraid. And climbing with people who didn't offer me that support. Hmm. And I knew how to distinguish between that even when I was pretty young. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you were in the position of supporting someone who was scared the way that you were day one? Yeah. I, um, I started working summer camps at the gym when I was 14. Mm. So I was pretty young then. And I remember that first summer, there was this little kid, he was probably six or seven. And, um, and he would never admit to being afraid. He would just see it. He was really great at communicating his boundaries. And I loved him for it. And we would, he would go up and he would get, you know, maybe three holds off the ground. And then he would say, stop. Hmm. And then and then he would look down and say, okay, down. And, you know, all the other people, it was a bunch of teenagers working at the gym. And I remember there was a lot of pressure on him. They were like, oh, you're only three holds up. How about six? Right. And he would just kind of give them this look like, I just... <clears throat> I just told you what I wanted, you <laughs> right, know, right. and I was, it was so cool to see that. But I remember, um, like celebrating with him when he would, when he would communicate a boundary and be like, wow, it's really awesome that you were self-aware and you knew when to come down. And then every time he would push and go like one rock higher, essentially. Right. And by the end of the week, he did go to the top of the wall. And that, I remember that being a really fulfilling experience 
Mm. Because I remember even at 14, like understanding that letting him kind of assess where he wanted to go was empowering him to go higher. And I, I think that was when I, like, I think that taught me a lesson about pushing myself too at that age. I, I love the idea of this six or seven year old kid doing it on his terms and, and still, you know, continuing to push and get to whatever this goal is, you know, the top of the wall in this case, but doing it on his own terms because yeah. we, we so often see kids um, who become adults in these situations where their entire process is being dictated to them by someone else, you know? Yeah. I really remember in those days, and this is something that I hear from the athletes that I coach all the time. I remember leaving the gym just so ashamed when I felt afraid, mm -hmm. as if I somehow owed it to someone to like go to the top of the steep lead, lead wall without taking, or like there was something <clears throat> I was like letting people down by being afraid still. Like I remember, yeah. I actually have journals from that time. I've always been a big journaler. And there's th days that I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, mm. why can't I just get over this? And just, it wasn't even a feeling of responsibility towards myself. It was like, I really felt like I was letting other people down. And I think that was an interesting thing of watching this kid who's six or seven, like just kind of own his space with it. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, I mean, I guess I said that that was the first person I coached, but like he also coached me in a lot of ways. Right. That's what I was just thinking. Like <laughs> teachers can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and ages and levels of experience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so cool. I, I see a lot of people end up in these instructor roles who don't believe that they have anything to gain from the mm. people they're instructing, you know, mm. like there's this clear hierarchy of, I am the leader. I know everything. I'm just going to teach you what I know. Um, and that's not how it works at all. No, definitely not. Yeah. I think, yeah, I learn more from every student that I work with than I learned, have learned from like any book or course or anything. Yeah, totally. How did you get involved with Warrior's Way? When I moved to Arizona to start, I was teaching at a gym there and then also guiding. And I just, I was doing a fair amount of one-on-one -on -one coaching at that point, teaching a lot of lessons. And I had personally known about the Warrior's Way and had taken a clinic and I had become really interested in the material like both the warrior's way book itself but also a lot of the background material mm -hmm. um so even at the time had gone back into the references section and started to like read a lot of the right. foundational texts behind the book and had done a lot of work in my own life i was struggling with a lot of mental health issues in my early 20s um, and i had like kind of been like exploring using climbing as a resource and so just, I thought it would be just a cool value added thing to be able to do in addition to the coaching I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I saw so many people, you know, I'd write them a physical training plan 
<clears throat> we'd like it would be like super awesome strength training. They their numbers would go up on the moon board, and and then it was like there was no change in their outdoor climbing, especially right. sure. And Flagstaff in particular, a lot of the climbing is a little bit like there's it's more involved with risk management. It's a lot of gear climbing, some thin gear climbing. So I just wanted to be able to teach people some of the things I had learned. And two of my mentors, um, Tracy and Elena, were both Warriors Way coaches. So yeah. I knew it was an option. Mm -hmm. And so I just reached out to Arno to see what the process would be like. And that started a relationship. Um, he was actually out in Arizona that year, so we climbed together. And then that kind of led me into the process of becoming a trainer. Hmm. I love that, you know, this is something I've said to, to you and Arno both, but I love that you two bring somewhat different approaches to the same end goal uh, and the same material. Um, because I, I, you know, there, there are people who, resonate with Arno in a really powerful way. And then there are going to be people who resonate with you in a really powerful way. Um, and I think that's so important to have, especially when the material itself is such an integral part of, of our wellness and performance, you know, which is what we're all looking for here. Yeah. Um, I think there's a misconception amongst a lot of people that something like the warrior's way is specifically for beginner climbers or climbers who are scared to fall. Um, you know, it gets, I I've heard it be pigeonholed in ways that I don't like. Um, because I think even the strongest, best climbers on the planet will deal with, you know, fear, um, and, and that fear sometimes will be more than they're prepared to deal with. Um, there, there are all sorts of mental health issues that can happen for athletes. We just watched Simone Biles stand up in front of the world and say, I, I'm not okay to perform, so I'm going to step out of the Olympic Games. You know, um, So to act like elite athletes or advanced athletes, or if you're climbing 512, you don't need Warrior's Way anymore, seems absurd to me. Um, have you experienced this, that there's this sort of a misconception? And how are you going about changing that? I'm curious. Yeah, no, that's a great thing to point out. You know, I would say First of all, it just gets more complex as you climb at more advanced <laughs> sure. levels. Like the need becomes more acute. Yeah. And it's <clears throat> interesting because, you know, kind of our, we have a five hour gym clinic that we teach about falling and commitment. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you are a five nine climber who is just limited, you just won't commit to a five ten move. And so you haven't been able to progress in your lead climbing. Five hours might be all you need to learn the skills that you can take and practice to be able to lead 510, you know, or depending on your physical ability, that could be 511 to 512. Right. It's really just if it literally is just you 
don't want to take a fall, you're unwilling to fall in places where it's relatively low risk, like a gym or a sport crag outside, then like, yeah, you can learn that in five hours and then you'll need to practice it more consistently. But it's similar to teaching someone who's never hangboarded before to hangboard. Right. It's like, yeah, if you do seven on three off repeaters, if you've never hung on a hangboard, your fingers will get stronger. Yeah. If you work with someone who's a 514 climber or who's been climbing for 20 years, and may, especially if maybe that basic fear of falling isn't there anymore, maybe in their specific discipline, they are really comfortable taking big whips and committing to moves, especially maybe if they're projecting something. Right. Then the things that are distractors that are coming up and their relationship to stress becomes more complicated. It like comes down to their relationship to their performance, their sense of self, their feelings, like their community, who they're around, how they ask for support, how they talk to themselves, and all of those add into stress. Mm -hmm. And so I think mental training becomes more important, but also more complicated at higher levels. Sure, which is exactly how the physical training exactly. happens as well. It, you yeah. know, the 7-3 repeater isn't going to give them the same benefit that the beginner saw. It's going to have to be a much more complicated uh, protocol of making them strong and making them better. Yeah, and that's been so <clears throat> cool for me to see of... In some ways, and this relates back to physical training too, it's like mental training just gets harder the longer you go. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, some, there have been times that I've had to catch myself of being like, do I really have to put this much effort into this now? Like look at all the work I've done. And I have to remember, oh, that I have to put in this much effort because of all the work I've done. Right. Like that all got me here so that now I'm strong enough to do this next thing. Absolutely. I also think there's this misconception of like, I don't climb R-rated routes or X-rated routes. So why do I need mental training? You know, why do I have to be concerned about fear? I'm just a sport climber yeah. or I'm just a boulder. Um, and I think the people who are saying those sorts of things or feel those sorts of things, um, maybe aren't pushing pushing themselves in a way that's going to exploit a, a fear that they have or a distraction that they have or the stressors that are popping up in their life or whatever. And, and that's totally fine, but a lot of us do push into that area and it doesn't need to be an R X rated route, something scary with bad gear. You know, it can, it can be on a normal boulder on a normal sport climb. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've definitely had situations where I felt more stress on a low ball boulder problem or a sport climb than I have on a dicey gear route. Yeah. And I think it comes down to, like, I like to use the word stress instead of the word fear. Mm. I don't use them interchangeably, but when I talk about what we're confronting, fear is a reaction to stress. But it's not the only reaction to stress. Sure. And we're kind of working on this continuum in climbing and in life where we're balancing 
comfort, safety, and security on one side, and then stress, learning, and growth on one, the other side. Mm. And we know what it's like to max out and not feel balanced, right? Like if we end up in comfort, safety, security, and we never go into that stress, we feel this kind of weird complacency and frustration. And you see that all the time at the crag of people that don't trust themselves to go into stress, learning, and growth, mm -hmm. right? They're like picking goals that are maybe quote unquote inspiring goals but really it's just the next step in their comfort zone that they can find right and then you see people that max out and they're not balanced they're too far on stress learning and growth and that's like you get shut down in that way as well mm -hmm. right they don't keep a reference point for what helps them stay well and then they kind of feel unstable they feel unsafe that tends to be where that fear reaction happens so stress can manifest in a lot of ways. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I, I I've been thinking a lot about progressing my my reaction to these stressful situations and how do I improve my process there. And just recently, um, I did a boulder that was really scary for me, and my next step for progressing my process wasn't to get on a taller, scarier, harder boulder. Um, that might seem like the logical next step um, because we think in this linear way. Instead, what I did, and ultimately I feel pretty good about it, was I, I tried an easier boulder, um, maybe slightly taller. The crux was a little closer to the ground um, and all I did was try to get rid of some of the steps that allowed me to feel really comfortable on the bigger harder scarier thing and oh let's see if I can apply the same process but cut out a few of those steps to this slightly easier slightly safer thing um, and ultimately felt really good about it but I could see someone viewing that as a step backwards mm. Yeah, that is actually, I, the very last thing that you said is important, like this idea of a step backwards or regression, right? Because I think we tend to see progression, like the obvious thing if I learn to manage this amount of stress is to add more stress. Right. And we forget that we're mm. actually working in cycles, mm. right? And so potentially like growth for someone that's just sent their hardest project growth might mean two months off like that right. might be the next logical step mm -hmm. if you don't understand like if you don't feel safe in your body to listen to it or confident in your performance or sense of self then that step that next step is always going to be what can i perform on next and not understanding right. and that sometimes mental training the people need mental training just to learn to embrace a cycle because that is a natural part of being an athlete. And I think there's a fear there. And so, like you said, you you tried applying what you had learned in a different situation. That could be a really awesome way of cycling. It doesn't always have to, you know, you don't have to sit on the couch for two months. Right. But doing something different and try and applying your skills in a different way, that's a really beautiful way to progress your learning 
and even to just embrace the like the finishing part of progression which is which is rest and relaxation and maybe learning too like we applied so much you applied so much in doing that hard scary boulder so then you need time to build new skills yeah absolutely and i i think as climbers a lot of us are really bad at reflecting on the success we just had and celebrating it um for any amount of time it's almost by the time we get back to the ground we're thinking about the next thing Um, i'm certainly guilty of that Uh, nate and i've been talking recently about um, some of the big mistakes that we see climbers making over and over again and one thing that came up was people always kind of in the same project mode where it's like i'm only I'm only a flash or on-site climber. I don't ever want to project. Or I'm only a projector. I don't ever try to on-site. You know, I don't ever have three-day projects. They're always six-month projects. Um, And how that can lead to being stagnant um, because it does seem like this linear progression. I'm going to keep getting better by doing this, but I love this idea of a, a cycle as opposed to this linear thing. Yeah. And I very much learned that the hard way. Like yeah. I was very much, uh, I think there was one season in the red where I climbed like 64 days on <laughs> like, without a rest day because I had 64. <laughs> I had to remember the exact number, but it was, it was so ridiculous. It was one of those things where it was like <laughs> in my brain, I was like, well, I climbed a lot and that helped me get better at climbing. Yeah. So if I just climb more, I'll get more better at climbing. Like, obviously. <laughs> Makes sense. And, um, and I've really been, I like I've had to, from a really like elementary point, learn about the importance of cycling. Mm-hmm. So when I say that to people, you know, this is not from a, like, oh, yeah, I just embrace the cycles <laughs> and it's really easy and fun to do right, that. Right. But it's from this side of, you know, people that are dealing with, chronic injuries like Mm -hmm. my question is from a mental training perspective is when did you first notice that something was different in your body you know and what was your reaction to it Mm -hmm. and not like you know six months down the road when you're taking rest because you're injured and you can't pull anymore and your strength is diminished but like what was your response to that first difference and the second time you noticed it and and why didn't you respond to that? Right. I think all of like our, our we can't separate out our bodies from mental training. And so we see, you know, when we're talking about physical recovery or or like kind of this desire to push and find our edge. It's not like we're saying, oh, just be easy on yourself. Like, don't push. It's more saying like, how much value are you getting out of this extended kind of performance phase that's ending up becoming a plateau right it's more about being smart and in tune with what's act with the reality of what's happening rather Mm -hmm. than just saying like be nice to yourself yeah and when you talk about this you know you mentioned chronic injuries and it occurs to me that there's also just this idea of 
motivation and where is your motivation? And we often feel like we we have to be motivated to climb the next hardest thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what we're supposed to do. And and some of that is social pressure, uh, you know, it could be caused by social media or your peers and you're, you're seeing them constantly, you know, progress in this linear way. They did 512A, then they did B, then they did C. And, and it just feels like you're supposed to do that. And uh, something I've been paying a lot more attention to the last four or five years is what am I actually motivated to do? You know, I want to climb harder boulders, but in the moment, I'm not motivated to go try harder boulders. So I'm doing what I'm motivated to do. And that's, it's putting me into this cycle, whether I knew I was there or not, um, just by following where my motivations go and not, not driving and banging my head against the wall when I'm not psyched to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's super interesting, right? I think I maybe have, I think I surprise people with my relationship towards grades because oftentimes when I'm coaching someone, they'll like say that they have a grade for a certain, to, or they have a goal to climb a certain grade and they'll get sheepish and they'll be like, I know it's not about the grades. And I'm like, no, set right. that goal for that grade. Right. Like, let's see what it brings up. You know, yep. let's see if it stays inspiring, let's see if it brings up like a need for love and belonging that you didn't want to admit. Like Mm -hmm. let's see if it's an ego thing, but it can be inspiring to climb the next grade. Yeah. And if it's not, you're going to find that out. Right. And it's, I think you have such a, you're very attuned to like your motivation. You kind of know when it waxes and wanes. Mm -hmm. So you'll probably you'll be able to tell like if you picked a grade goal that was Mm -hmm. just solely a grade and you started chasing after it you would be able to tell when you felt that motivation drop Mm -hmm. and a lot of climbers don't totally know the difference sure like they're like oh i'm just weak or i'm just i'm getting super scared for some reason and they don't know that it's because they're just following a goal that wasn't really ever theirs how do you lead people into learning to be more aware of their own motivations? Mm-hmm. Th- this is a whole <laughs> separate podcast series on its own. Totally. Um, but just the the basics of where a person might start. I think it starts with body awareness. Most of mental training starts with body awareness. Mm. But understanding, you know, we walk around... I guess we have two kind of basic ways of focusing attention. Like we can focus attention in awareness, what's going on inside of our body, what's going on outside of our body that our senses can take in. And then we can focus on thinking, right? Like we can metacognition, basically, yeah. thinking about our thinking. And yeah, and humans are so cool <laughs> because we can like have whole conversations with ourselves. Right. And we get so interested and self-involved in that voice inside of our heads that we think that all of mental training is just learning to like kind of optimize our inner dialogue Hmm. and we think if i could just say the right things to that voice 
then I would be the most mentally fit person. Mm. And what really happens is we end up in an inner dialogue in our head all day and we don't even know what our body is doing, which becomes a huge liability both to our safety and our performance when we're climbing because climbing is a body-oriented task, right? We're moving over the rock. And our body ultimately has a way better understanding of what is safe or not for us than our mind, this voice in our head does. So I guess I start everyone with body awareness because it's like, okay, how do we learn to like, to notice that that voice is one part of the information that's going on that is available to us? And not silence it or stop listening to it, but just also notice other things. Because I think when we're learning about motivation, motivation is linked to our intuition. And intuition is a feeling. It's not something that we think. Sure. So I guess just like helping someone understand, you know, one of the really basic drills I'll do with my athletes when we start is in the morning... We set up a position where they pay attention internally to their posture, to their breathing, to where they're feeling tension, where they're relaxed, externally to what they can feel, hear, and see. That's all we do. Just like two Mm -hmm. minutes in the morning. Throughout the day, they just try their best to notice when they get stuck in thinking Mm. and bring their attention back to their body, internal and external awareness. And it's interesting if, you know, anyone listening and also like for me, if I go through my day, especially when I started that, I the first time I noticed that I wasn't paying attention to internal or external awareness might be 2 or 3 p.m. Right. You right. know, when I like looked at something that reminded me and I, and that might be the first time that I conscientiously paid attention to what I was feeling. So we can't expect to know much about our motivation, what we're feeling, where we're being drawn to, if we don't really know what feeling feels like. Right. You know, so I would say that's where I start is just understanding our feeling, not like, oh, our like mushy gushy feelings, but literally like what's happening in our body. And then once you understand that, you can start to notice how your body reacts to different things that it's going experiencing, which includes climbing and your performance while climbing. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. You know, my my wife was not an athlete growing up, and um, talking to her about her climbing and how her performance is linked to her her own self-worth or her feelings of you know about how the day is gone or something like that um, was the first time it really occurred to me that the that I had gotten this huge benefit out of spending all this time as a kid with my body and really paying attention to how my body feels in these positions and how do I get it to do these things that I want it to do? And, and that has led to, to being able to understand my mental process a little better than maybe someone who wasn't an athlete. Yeah. I think being an athlete is huge for developing that trust in your body I think there's also, it's really important to point out that there's a lot of privilege in 
being able to trust our bodies totally because all different types of bodies are weaponized yeah and are targeted so if you've been raised in a body that was and maybe you didn't have access to something that was affirming movement like sports but mm-hmm. also if you are raised in a body that is targeted by other people and made to feel unsafe sure then it's harder to feel at home in your body there's sure. like all of it really is a complex thing and so starting with like exploring body awareness can be I mean it's simple but it also it's like it can be a really complicated thing too there's so many factors in it yeah and I you know I think uh, I'm glad you point that out because as a as a white you know kid who kind of fit into the average size you know adult or average size human i was my body it was almost like your body is meant to perform like this machine like that that's kind of how i felt growing up like you were given this body to be an athlete you know so it just felt natural to do that and it was never um i love the word you use weaponized you know as this sexual thing or as this scary thing or um whatever it might have been for countless other people yeah and there's barriers to that too of being taught that your body is a machine right absolutely but i just think and it's so it's so cool in a way (laughs) to see like oh when i learn like I guess learning that body awareness and learning body trust, it's like this amazing resource for being an athlete. It also becomes this kind of radical tool in a way. Sure. And it and I mean, it also just improves your performance. Like when we yeah. think of body awareness, that includes things like proprioception and mm-hmm. and knowledge of how we're moving over rock, you know, and as as a human, how we're moving our body. So it's kind of cool that it has all these intersections of like, I get to deconstruct some of the lessons that I've learned from the world about how bodies should be. I get to improve my performance and I'm developing trust in myself and my abilities. Right. Yeah. And it all works together. That's the, that's the coolest part of all of it. Yeah. We all need all of the things all the time exactly yeah you're also going you're back in school Mm -hmm. is that right Mm -hmm. for psychology yeah i'm getting my master's in counseling got it and kind of i'm doing an emphasis in my degree on adventure-based counseling and also somatic counseling Hmm. so it is it's body-based therapy essentially yeah yeah very cool. And like like I said in the very beginning, I love how deep you're going with this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't stop at, I'm just going to get this Warrior's Way certification, become a trainer, and that's where the mental journey ends. Um, you're, you're taking it much further, and I love that. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it, it really ties into a sense of purpose for me. Mm. It's like... I mean, I love seeing performance gains when in my athletes, I'm going to be the first person to run up and give someone a high five when they like get their first 512 or when I see all like I'll tear up when I see an athlete who's put so much work into a project send, even yeah. if I don't know them, yeah. like even if they're not totally. my athlete. 
So I love that side of it, but I would say for me, coaching, mental training, and what I'm doing with becoming a therapist, it's this idea that hurt people hurt people, mm-hmm. right? That's Those aren't my words. They've been used around the mental health world for a while. But it's really important to know that that means that when we pursue our own healing journeys, that's how we make communities that take care of them, even of, of each other, right? Mm-hmm. And we create compassionate communities and we really create a world that's worth living in. And I think that to me is really worthwhile. So that I think that's why I keep going. It's like, I'm not just trying to get, like I don't see it as an, as an end game where I just need to like get this level of cert and then I can do this career where right. I get to like do some cool thing. It really feels meaningful to me. And I feel like I'm creating the kind of world that I want to live in. I'm so glad you are. I'm so glad you're a part of this community. Um, it makes it a better place, 100%. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to move into a little bit of a selfish place here because, you know, like I said, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. I want to speed up my own process. There was definitely a time when I was like, oh, I've got this, the mental side of this thing dialed, you know, no problem. Um, and that's not always the case, especially as I you know, like we mentioned, as I become a better climber, um, as I move into more parts of my life in general, there's a lot more to think about. There's a lot more to feel and making all of that or, um, combining all of that into this experience I'm having when I'm climbing uh, feels different than it did in my twenties, you know, uh, as, as it should, um, so I'm just interested in exploring new places where I feel a little uncomfortable. And I recently recently put up a video of uh, a boulder that I had worked on and had scared me a bit. And I almost wasn't sure I was going to go back to it. Um, but I, it's such a beautiful boulder. I couldn't not go back. So I went back and I challenged myself and ultimately did the boulder. And after I did the boulder, I realized, oh, I have just out of habit, I was setting up my camera. I didn't know what I was going to do with the footage, but I was watching the footage and realized that so many times when I was dropping off the boulder, I was like, oh, that's so scary. You know, that's terrifying. And you know, I could see myself like breathing heavy and I would lay down and try to calm myself down. And it just seemed like this really, this opportunity to let people know that just because you're climbing a certain grade doesn't mean you aren't scared anymore, um, that you aren't struggling with stressful situations that are a little, a little more stressful than you're prepared to handle at that moment. And and just to show people how can we give people a tangible way to maybe push through these things or move through these things. Maybe push isn't even the right word for moving through it. Um, and you're, uh, you know, I, I love that this this podcast started out with you being scared at the top of the wall on your first day of rock climbing. Um, and now you've climbed 514 
trad routes and you can move from that place of so much fear that you won't let go to I can work through this process. I can, I can deal with the stress that's in this situation. So I asked you to watch the video and maybe talk a little about it. Um, and initially I said, you know, tell me what I could have done better. Tell me what I did well. And, and you indicated that maybe that's not the best approach to talking about it for you. Yeah, as I was watching it, and I love that you were just talking about, like you pointed out my, maybe what could be seen as like a progression through fear. And I've actually been asked that a couple of times of like, how did you get from getting afraid on, you know, this on the slab wall to like sending a gear route that objectively has scary fall potential? Right. It's like, oh, I, I used the same process that day as I use on this climb and I got scared on this climb. And right. what I loved watching your video was that you normalized a lot of the experiences that we're all going through in climbing. That's part of why I think we all love climbing. And there's this inner dialogue where we often don't share it or even like try not to notice it in ourselves because we think that it's what we're not supposed to feel. Right. So even... Like there were, I guess there were a few moments in the film that really stuck out to me as moments that a lot of people go through and experience in a typical projecting progression that brings up fear or doubt that I really, I loved them. And I kind of, I would almost rather like look at those moments than say, did you respond well or not to mm. that experience? Mm -hmm. Um like one of them that came to mind was there was a moment early on in the projecting experience when you said, this isn't me. Right. And it's like this feeling of like, this isn't me. I'm not a scared climber. I'm not someone who right. wants to give up. I'm not someone who lets go. Yeah, I learn the move. I execute. That's the way it goes. Yeah, that's me. That's my identity, right? Yeah. And I think we think of ego in climbing, I think as having like being proud of ourselves or being like all thinking we're all that. And sometimes people will include like, oh, ego could also be self-deprecation, like I'm right. not good enough. Right. And I tend to define ego, and this is something we do across the warrior's way, is ego is anytime our identity is attached to an outcome. Hmm. So that could be as simple as I am a person who doesn't let go, right? right? Like our identity is attached to the outcome of letting, of not letting go. Right. And so all of a sudden it becomes distracting to us when we do let go because ultimately everyone will. Yeah. So there has to be this feeling <laughs> of my identity doesn't go away when I produce a different outcome than the one I either usually do or wanted to. Hmm. That's great. And that attachment, I think, can come from a lot of places. You know, we we get told stories from a lot of places and it could be it could be something as simple as your friends over many years saying, Oh, you're really good at that. Mm -hmm. You know, or wow, I wish I could do that the way that you do it. Or, mm -hmm. you know, every time you learn a move you then just send. That's very cool. 
Yeah. You know, and once you hear that story enough times, you start to just believe mm-hmm. that story of I'm that person. Mm-hmm. You know, that's my that's me as a climber. Mm-hmm. And we get attached to it because it is a comfortable thing. Yeah. Right? Like our ego wants comfort, so it creates boxes, Mm -hmm. essentially. And they're boxes to keep us safe, right? Like if we think that need there, it's comfort, safety, security, right? That's a human need. So if we're going into a box, it means that we've gotten threatened for some reason. So we go back to what we know. Mm -hmm. And that could be like going back to this identity of not letting go. For some people, like I taught a clinic once and um, one of the students went up just a couple bolts and just started sobbing and we weren't falling yet. We weren't doing anything. And so, I, you know, I checked in like, are you okay? Is something going on today? And they are like, oh, don't worry. I'm just the climber that cries on the wall. Mm. And they, it was like they they went there because that was kind of their schema for what would happen when they went rock climbing. Right. And we just start to really see it's like, what would happen if you just broke that schema for one day? Like, then you wouldn't feel threatened by the idea of it getting broken. Hmm. Because we avoid a lot of things because we're afraid that that's, that identity might be rocked a little bit. Right. That That's really interesting because my response to feeling that like feeling like this isn't the climber who I am um, was I now need to go out there by myself a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to not be me in front of other people. Maybe, um, maybe it just felt like a personal thing I needed to explore on my own. Um, so even in a situation where it was, maybe a little more scary to be there by myself without a bunch of spotters. It's, it just felt like what I had to do. Um, and I think it's attached to that, like shedding of this identity that I had given myself for whatever reason. Yeah. I thought that was super wise, you know, like finding, cause if we're, if our ego is coming up for that reason, right? Like we identified it's because, something is feeling threatening. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, you can just go with like finding that box to sit in and that'll feel more comfortable. You can also ask like, okay, what would be another option for feeling more comfortable <clears throat> if I want to be curious about this? Like I am going to feel curious when I feel safe. Right. We don't go out and explore and play when we're kids if we feel threatened. Right. Right. So you said in that situation, like it might not have been that you were actually terrified of of getting hurt on the boulder it was more like this feeling of being afraid of being limited by fear Mm -hmm. and so going out alone in some ways it made you feel socially safer Mm -hmm. so then you're like oh yeah now now this feels more curious like now i feel like this is something i can have more fun with and i thought that was really cool it felt really important to me in the moment. I love that you said it seemed wise. I'm going to call myself wise from now on. So, so thanks for telling me that story. Um, <laughs> but it did. It felt right to me, and I just had to follow that. You know, there was part of me saying, "Oh, you should have some spotters when you come out here," 
Um, but the other part of me was saying, you need to do this on your own for whatever reason. Yeah. So. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And not taking away from your experience of feeling wise because I, but we all are right like we right. all have that totally. we know what we need yeah and we just like we I mean that's something like getting our identity tied to tied to an outcome or like all these different distractions about what we should be doing what we're supposed to be doing like they all just kind of distract us from what we're just we already have that knowledge of how we need to move in the world mm-hmm. and you you know so often you go through I think probably everyone can relate to like knowing that they need to make a decision and day one like the decision is posed to them and they are like know what needs to happen but then they go through like this month-long process of asking right. everyone they know and like writing lists and like yeah the day 30 comes and the decision has to be made and they make that decision that they knew they wanted to make on day one totally and it's just it's like we already know what we need we don't need to be told that. We just have to learn how to quiet down enough and do it. Mm-hmm. And so in that situation, you're like, yeah, I just needed to be alone. There were some other factors there that you had to manage, and you did. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I've always felt like that is a, a, a part of my process that I I intellectualize a little bit, but then I also allow myself to feel it, like, What's going to make me comfortable to do this next thing I need to do? Mm-hmm. Um, like the intellectualizing part is what's what's the next step for me? What do I need to do to get comfortable enough to try this next step? And then the feeling of it is is how I answer that question of what mm-hmm. do I need? Yeah. You know? And I think a common misconception is that like this idea of intuition or feeling that it's kind of this like esoteric spiritual thing. Right. When really, if we look at the neurobiology of it, it's really just that we have implicit and explicit memory. Mm. Explicit memory is memory that we can recall with that mind, with our, you know, our frontal lobe, like we can have conversations and remember in a story. Right. Implicit memory is stored in our body. And so when we're talking about intuition, we're talking about something neurological that can be measured and and looked at in the brain. It's not just saying like, oh, yeah, this like this spiritual feeling that I have. Sure. It's really I mean, it's just we have memory. We're not able to recall that much explicit memory and our implicit memory, this memory that's stored inside of our body those are things like riding a bike, like, you know, cooking your favorite meal that you don't have to think about. And also it's our decision-making tool because it can mm. take all of the experiences that we've had in our life and assimilate them into a gut feeling in just a moment, which is so cool. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a question for you about a moment on that boulder uh, that I talk about in the video, which is there, and this is something that I honestly don't know if has ever happened to me climbing before. Maybe it has once or twice where I, there was a finger lock mm-hmm. that that was the way I'd found to do the crux. 
It was a really tight finger lock I had to wiggle into and then was after I waited was harder to get back out at the top of the boulder. And, and I just had this vision of what if I can't get my finger back out? You know, what happens? How do I, I'm just going to die out here in the middle of nowhere, dangling from this finger lock, you know? Um, And I don't normally go to places that are, the word I'm the word I used in the video is irrational. Um, how often, or I'm sure we, you see that regularly um, that people assume the worst is going to happen. Um, how do we handle that situation when it pops up? Because I think for a lot of people, it pops up somewhat regularly. Mm, yeah it's so important i think and people love to ask about like the difference between rational and irrational fear yeah like which of my fears are real and which are fake kind of right 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 and um i it's interesting because it's all fear right and all of them are thoughts that we're having about the future whether it's helping us make an effective risk decision or not, you know, that that is a question about like, are we taking in the correct objective information? But when it really comes down to it, when you're like having this thought about your finger lock staying stuck and getting nervous about it, it's just fear, right? right. It's just like a signal from your body. And whether it makes sense to you that it's there or not, deciding whether it's supposed to be there is just more thinking. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's like addressing that and saying to yourself, like having that moment where you can observe and be like, wow, I'm really scared right now. What's going on? You know, Mm -hmm. like, can I get more curious about that? Um, That's where you can start to notice what you need. You know, and I love that in that situation, you hung that rope down for Alaska. Yeah. And I thought that was amazing because you experienced that hanging that rope down seemed like it settled your nervous system down just a little bit. Yeah, I, I hung the rope and I don't talk about it a lot in the video, but yeah. but what I did is I put knots in a rope mm-hmm. at a spot where if my finger lock stuck, I can grab a hold of that rope. And it was out of my reach, Yeah. but I had a discussion with Lana. Like, yeah. if I get stuck there, pull this rope over so that I can grab a hold of this knot and weight the rope and pull my finger lock out. Yeah. Um, and that gave me the security of, okay, you're not going to die dangling here. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, it, it was something concrete. Yeah. Right. And I think that that can be effective, like doing something like that. It's not always possible to manage right. fear like that. Right. So sometimes you have to look for other ways to manage fear. And that means settling your nervous system down. It doesn't mean proving to yourself that that couldn't happen. Right. Because, you know, so many things, like if we talked to someone five years ago and said, you know, I don't want to get on a plane because what if there was a global pandemic? People would have been like, oh, my God, you are so irrational. Mm. This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And now we're in the middle of something and it feels rational because we've experienced it. 
And so we really can't like plan for what is or isn't going to happen. And even if we plan for our worst case scenarios and hang like metaphorical knotted ropes all around our lives, mm-hmm. we're not going to be able to manage every risk that could happen. And at the same time, you can learn like basic tools for settling your nervous system down, right? And that can range from everything from breathing to, you know, on a route, if you're completely panicking, if you're on a sport or a trad route, it might mean taking and just showing yourself that you actually are alive and that you will stay alive on the rock climb at that moment. Yeah. It could mean asking for support from someone. Mm-hmm. Um, it can mean doing a funny dance to like make yourself laugh, you know. But I think it's important to recognize that we can't talk ourselves out of fear by saying it's rational or not. Yeah. And you imagine, you know, that part of your brain that that experiences fear is like they call it the reptilian brain for a reason. It doesn't have the same connection to our cognition like it can send us thoughts that try to get us away yeah but the thoughts not it's not saying you know we can look at a stick and think it's a snake that's our reptilian brain saying like get away from danger we don't need to like sit there and rationally think about whether the stick is actually a snake like of course it's not right but it's just important information that our nervous system has just whoop, gone out the roof mm-hmm and so then you can respond to that instead of worrying about whether it's rational or not. Yeah. There's there's another moment I'm curious about, and then I, I want to hear if we've like hit the points that you thought were interesting in there um, or not. But there's something I've told a lot of people, um, and Lana who is the star of the show at the end of the video had to give me a talking to about, um, and she says, I'm just telling you what you'd tell me, you know, and that's that I know I'm going to be scared, you know, and I have to stop being surprised that I'm scared because there was a point where I went back to, you know, three quarters of the way through this thing, I went back to, my story about myself like this is this is the climber i am i've learned this i should just be able to execute it but then i got there there was a little more fatigue and i was scared again um and i was like oh no what do i do now and i dropped off again and then lana's like basically saying you have to stop being surprised at being scared there you're going to be scared it's going to be scary you know when you top out you're going to be scared still that's okay. Uh, it's not going to go away. And I think it's really important to accept these feelings that rather than try to get rid of them, we're, we're accepting them and working with them instead of deletion. Yeah. I think maybe we can go back to the snake example. Okay. Like I think a lot of people who experience tough emotions just wish that they weren't there. Mm-hmm. And so then they have a second emotion that's like a reaction to their emotion being there. Mm-hmm. So it would kind of be like if you were in a room with a rattlesnake and you're like right next to the rattlesnake and maybe you have different resources, but instead you just like 
cover your eyes and you're just like, this isn't happening. Like, no, 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 no. Like, this isn't the case. Like, that is not going to help you deal with the thing, right? It's just like the snake is there. It's going to do its thing if you don't respond in some way. There's another side where, like, sometimes I'll be on a climb and I literally will just, when I feel afraid, I'll just say to myself, fear fear like that's fear i'm feeling afraid Hmm. you know and and i won't go through that dialogue the whole time but you know i'll say like fear and then take a breath Hmm. i'm not saying fear 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 like elevating myself more but i'm gonna notice it you know and um the same way that as a belayer like if you notice your climber getting nervous and you say something like hey i'm with you i got you yeah um you know don't don't forget to breathe like as a climber, it's really powerful to do that for yourself. Yeah. And that's kind of what Lana was saying to you and what you said to other people. It's so much easier to do it to someone else. Absolutely. Right. Like as a belayer, we can all be like, I got you. This is <laughs> like, I am with you. Mm-hmm. And as a person who's experienced it thing that themselves, who's experiencing it themselves, it's really hard not to feel fear and just say no. Like, this isn't allowed. If I let this in, I don't know where it's going to spiral to, and I'm afraid of that. Yeah. And instead to say, this is allowed. It makes sense. Take a breath. I'm here with you. Like, saying that to yourself. That's really powerful because then you don't have to wait until you're not afraid to go play. Because mm. if you're really doing things that are worthwhile, that are new... Of course, that fear is going to be there, right? And then it's a really awesome thing to get curious about. But if we get defensive around it, then it becomes just this thought spiral. And it ends up, a lot of times you can push through it. Like it can work. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, people have written whole mental training books on pushing away fear and mental toughness. Right. And that approach has a very limited lifespan yeah so eventually you know maybe you get to the top you feel like you pulled it off but then you get nervous about the next time and maybe you never really enjoy what you're doing because Mm -hmm. you're always pushing you're experiencing the the experience from one step removed yeah so it's a big difference to say i'm here with my fear climbing this yeah, and there have certainly been times for me as a climber and as a belayer um, where I've, I have or I've seen someone acknowledge their fear and just by acknowledging it, they're suddenly able to move with it and it not hinder them. Yeah. Um, you know, you it, it brought up a memory of, uh, one of my best friends, Yasmin, uh, belaying her years ago and she's sketching out a little bit. She's on this, uh, 5'11 trad route and she's like, watch me here. I'm really scared. Never mind. No, I'm not. (laughs) And then she just kept climbing. Yeah. (laughs) And, and it's just this, this beautiful moment of, I, I acknowledged my fear and that allowed it to be fine, mm-hmm. you know? And sometimes it can be that simple. Sometimes it's a lot more involved. Like maybe you need Alana who can remind you, you know? Yeah. 
And in a way, Lana, like, yeah, it was a hard truth. But in a way, she gave you that acceptance, too. Yeah. Like, it was, I think, when we think of the the type of kind of hard truth or support that we often need, it's, like, tough and loving. Yeah. Like, we need someone that communicates what we need to hear in a compassionate way. And they're, like, it's almost like they trust us to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And that trust is empowering. And that was what I really took from her saying, like, yeah, this is what you need to hear. Like, I'm going to tell it to you. I'm going to tell it to you because I care about you. Yeah. And I trust you to take it and run with it. She also does really like to just yell at me. Totally. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I agree. And I I think that, like, tough and loving relationship is something that Lana and I definitely have. Um, and maybe that's why I wanted her to go out with me that day. Um, certainly wasn't because she's like the best spotter around, you know, she's this tiny human. I'm going to crush her if I fall from up there. So there was something else at play. I don't know anything about Lana's spotting, but I will say the best spot I ever received from someone was from a friend who's probably 85 pounds. Mm. I didn't know this, but she used to be a cheerleader. Oh, sure. And I fell out of a crack, actually. I was just like going up and my foot slipped and she caught me out of the air and put me down on my feet. (laughs) And uh, most impressive thing that's ever happened to me in my rock climbing. So you never want to underestimate the tiny spotters. You never know. Lana might have a cheerleading background I don't know about. You could ask her. <laughs> were, there, were there other moments in there that seemed important to you? I, I feel a little removed from it at this point because I've made this piece of media put it out there. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if there was something in there that struck you or if we've touched on it all. I think that we've touched on most of it, but one other thing that struck me was kind of, you know, just the end process of how it's like when you go through a process like that, particularly with a kind of a climb that is mentally fatiguing, mm-hmm. whether it's actually a scary route or it's mentally fatiguing because you usually climb this grade and X number of goes and it took twice as many. Whatever it was that made you stay committed, you get a lot of feedback about your process when you top out the climb. Yeah. Because then it's it's like it all comes to a screeching halt in mm-hmm. a way. But it's really interesting. It's like, yeah, it is all over, but you kind of get to look back a little bit and you did that in the film not just like, oh, what did I learn? Like, what can I take going forward? But you kind of notice, like, did I put the effort into this experience? Did I want to be there along the way? Or was I in this experience to get it over with? Yeah. And I appreciated, like, you're just kind of looking back at the what everything that you experienced to get to that end point because so often we do approach, especially climbing that feels mentally fatiguing as something to get over with. Right. Like, and I think most of us wouldn't be surprised to hear someone, like um, we have a kind of heads up trad area in Arizona and 
anyone would understand if someone said, you know, I just don't want to have to lead that again. Right. I really hope I just send this R-rated route this time so that I don't have to do it sure. again. Sure, yeah. But then we look at it and it's like, even if you live a super charmed life, you make sacrifices to be able to go climbing. Mm-hmm. And you like do all of this, you get everything together, you know, like there were times when you said, oh, I just had an hour that day. Or, you know, we I had to deal with weather or partners or like in some way we sacrifice something to go climbing. So if we spend our whole day just wanting to get it over with, eventually we will be done climbing. Like eventually we will do our last rock climb and we won't get to climb anymore. Mm-hmm. And if we spent our whole <laughs> climbing career trying to get those experiences over with, it ends up being kind of sad. Yeah. And that was something that really stuck out to me was just the moment of pause that you took at the end of the process to notice that it was you were valuing being there. Mm. And I'm sure there were times, like just like I know there's times for me when I'm working on something when I have to remind myself of that, yeah, of wanting to be there. But I think that's really important, especially in um, types of climbs that are mentally draining. Hmm. I appreciate you saying that it, it felt really honest to go back and look at it and, you know, try to, um, try to pull the lessons out of it in a, in a way that made sense, that would make sense to other people instead of just, I lived this, so I got the lesson from it, obviously, um, but actually reflecting on it and saying, how can I, how can I point this out to people? Um, felt really like an honest way to learn from it. So, so I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's cool because every time that, you know, I think in Instagram era of climbing, there's this pressure to really articulate at the end of a climb. We're like, okay, now that I've sent Here's what I learned. Right. Instead of just noticing along the way, being like, oh, the value was actually just in going out all of those mm-hmm. days, in, in the investment that I put in. It doesn't have to be like a cute three sentence, like, here's my learning outcome. Right. Because that can even be kind of an outcome oriented thing. Mm-hmm. So it's cool to just say, like, there was value in the time that I like wish that I had sent it and I didn't, there was value in going out here alone. There was like all of that added value to my life. That was, it was a cool kind of look back at it. Cool. Well, I, I appreciate your wisdom. Um, and for bringing that not only to this conversation, but like I said earlier to this community, I think it's, a a huge part of our growth as a community um so so thank you for that how can people find you if they're interested in working with you whether that's in person or remotely or whatever where can they learn more yeah the easiest ways to get a hold of me personally are either through instagram it's just my name at laura sabrin um, and then my email is lore.sabrin at warriorsway.com. And then they can also find me through the Warriors Way. So cool. we're online at warriorsway.com and there's links to find coaching and training. 
We have remote programs, both group and one-on-one, -on -one, and then we teach a ton of in-person clinics all around the country. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm going to make another video so that I get another chance to have my own personal <laughs> session with you and learn more about my own process. So thank you a ton for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Climbing better isn't about just getting physically stronger. It's about confronting whatever obstacles you find in front of you and dancing with them instead of fighting. Um, better understanding your own motivations and not taking the easier path just because it's easier. I mean, we can walk up the back of boulders, right? Why do we choose to do the boulder problem on the front side? Lore has written for us before about finding joy in improbable goals. And this is an article that helped inspire me to lean harder into these particular things that scare me. Um, they're also the subject of a brilliant documentary film from Patagonia called They Them that will be released on October 6th, a week from the day that this is dropping. Uh, I got to watch the film and literally 30 seconds into watching the film I said out loud fuck I know exactly how that feels and I was hooked and I guarantee you that you will be too um, Laura's dealt with all of the same fear that you have as a climber and they've leaned into it and emerged a better teacher for it an incredibly valuable teacher for it and in this film does a fantastic job of highlighting this incredible human. In the first few days of the film's released, uh, there will be included a panel that was recorded with Lore and Nikki Smith that will explore ways that you, that I, that, that we can better continue the conversation from the film in our own communities. Lore is available for remote group courses, remote one-on-one -on -one coaching, and they'll have some clinics later this fall in both Salt Lake City and Joshua Tree. I have links to the calendar on the Warrior's Way website right there in the show notes in your pocket supercomputer. You'll also find links to the Patagonia film once it is out, and you will find links to the video that, that I asked Lore to watch. Uh, and critique my process. So please, if you're interested, if something in this episode struck you, reach out to Lore and work with them. It'll be one of the best things you've ever done for your climbing. All right, you all know where to find us, powercompanyclimbing.com. You can find us on the Instagram, the Facebook, the Pinterest, the YouTube, at Power Company Climbing. Speaking of the Facebook, we have a community group over there that I am currently in the process of moving to a new forum off of Facebook because frankly, I just don't enjoy getting on Facebook anymore at all. It's a drain on me, it's probably a drain on you, and I'm getting rid of the things that are draining to me in my life. So we're moving that forum over to another place where we can have a better connection with our community. And I hope that I'll see you there. Be on the lookout. Okay, you should be all a Twitter about this episode. Tweet it out. I don't know what you do over there, but whatever it is, do it. However, I will not be liking, hearting, retweeting, whatever that is, because we don't tweet. 
we scream like eagles.